In C.S. Lewis's novel Prince Caspian, two dwarfs, Trumpkin and Nicobrick, have to decide whether or not they're going to kill the prince. Here's what happened. When Prince Caspian is thrown from his horse, the dwarfs capture him, and Nicobrick thinks that they should run a sword through him right away. After all, he's a human, and humans have been their natural enemies for generations. He's not to be trusted. But Trumpkin, on the other hand, is willing to wait and listen to Prince Caspian explain that he's not their enemy, but he actually wants them to join him in fighting a common enemy that they have, his evil, power-hungry uncle, Miraz. Well, the argument between Trumpkin and Nicobrick stems from how each of the dwarves answers this question. Can people really change? Nicobrick thinks, no, people don't change. Once an enemy, always an enemy. All humans are bad and they're not to be trusted. Trumpkin, though, he's willing to give Prince Caspian the chance to become that one shining exception of an honorable and trustworthy human. This is a risk if they decide to, to believe him. Giving people the chance to change is a risk for anyone. I mean, they might betray you. They might be playing you. It might just be a trick. It might cost you in a big way. Well, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to Philemon that we've been studying for the past several weeks, had an experience similar to that of Prince Caspian when he changed his life and became a Christ follower. Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, as he was known then, hated Christians. We saw this last week as we looked at some of his past. We knew that he was a Jewish authority, he was a Pharisee, and he would hunt down anyone claiming to follow Jesus and he would throw them in prison. That was his passion. It was the thing he loved doing more than anything else in the world. He thought he was doing God's will. Listen to how Paul describes his past. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus, and I went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So Saul had a pretty firm reputation as being an enemy of Jesus. But then something happened to him that became the story that he probably told more than any other story in his life. And it's a story that's recounted three times in the book of Acts alone. He tells it so much. Listen to Paul telling the story about what happened that changed his life. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. Well, my companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one 
and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And from that moment on, Saul, the persecutor of Christians, became Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. But not everybody knew that. So when Paul went to team up with some Christians in Jerusalem, he was received kind of like Prince Caspian with the dwarfs. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So, so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas was Saul's trumpkin, the person who actually believed that he could change and was no longer a threat to them. So Paul's own personal experience told him that, yes, people can change, especially by the power of Christ and God's Holy Spirit at work. But it's not just that people can change, it's that people have to change. The good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners and conquered death through his resurrection is inherently transformational. Once you know it, you can't unknow it. It's kind of like this little uh, wood carving decoration that uh, my mom had in my house growing up. There's this weird little thing that was on the shelf. I always saw it. it, had these weird little shapes on it, and I never knew what it was. It seemed like it was a foreign language or something. And I never really got it until one day I was looking at it, and I realized the shapes were actually the negative space in the word Jesus. I'd looked at this thing a hundred times before, and I never saw Jesus. And then just one day, I did. And now I can't look at something like this and not see Jesus. Well, that's how it is when the gospel speaks words of conviction and change into your life. Once you see Jesus, there's no going back. And Paul takes that belief into his encounter with Onesimus and Philemon. He says, you've both been reconciled with God. Now you need to be reconciled with each other. In Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he puts it like this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's awesome. And that sounds great as a Bible reading, but when someone like Paul comes along and points out to people like Philemon and Onesimus how they need to change their lives, well, that's a harder message. That's going to upset the predictable and comfortable systems that we've set up for ourselves. It's going to force us to ask ourselves, do I really believe that people can change? And what about me? Can I change? Onesimus was probably wondering if Philemon could truly welcome him back and become the kind of slave owner that he wouldn't want to run away from. And Philemon was wondering if Onesimus could live and serve in the household that he had run away from. And if he himself could actually treat someone that he'd always considered to be a piece of property as an equal member of the family. The two of them might have talked it over and come back and said, yeah, you know what, Paul? We thought about it and we're not going to do it. We don't want to change. It's too hard. But Paul tells them, you have to let the gospel change you. He writes this, I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me 
so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Like Trumpkin taking a risk on Prince Caspian, Philemon and Onesimus are risking a lot in letting the gospel that, that Paul had taught them both be the guiding principle of their relationship. We need to realize that what Paul is prescribing here is something totally new, and it's very risky. It was something that there was no playbook for. This wasn't just letting a slave return home. That had happened a number of times in the ancient world. There was a playbook for that, and there was varying levels of consequences for slaves who were returned home. It wasn't that. And it wasn't just free Onesimus, let him go and forget about it. There's a, there was a precedent and a protocol for that as well. But this was new. This was a new kind of relationship between slave and master that was based on family. They were becoming brothers in Christ. And trying to get people to sign on to something that they've never experienced or heard of before is hard. Our contentment or our resignation to the way that things always are keeps us from living into the gospel vision that Paul is trying to help us grasp. So we either play it safe and we stick with what we always known, or we take that risk and we move forward into God's kingdom future. Paul encouraged Philemon and Onesimus to take a risk on each other because he had taken a risk on them. And Paul took a risk on them and other people like them because a guy named Barnabas had taken a risk on him. And Barnabas probably took a risk on Saul of Tarsus because he heard about a guy named Jesus who took a risk on all of us. Believing not just that individuals can change, but that all of humanity can change in a way that blesses all of God's good creation. And so I want us to ask ourselves three reflection questions today. One, do I let people change? Two, am I willing to change? And three, how should the church change? First question, do I let people change? Do I believe that people are capable of major changes of heart? Am I a Trumpkin or a Nicobrick? Maybe your experience has taught you that, yeah, sure, people can change in small ways, but they can't change their core. Do you hold things against people that they did to you a long time ago? Do you judge people by things that their family members have done? Do you tend to believe stereotypes and sweeping generalizations about groups of people? How about this one? Do you like to point out people's hypocrisy? Do you savor that moment when you can shout, aha, at somebody? You might say, aha, you told me one time that you didn't like turkey sandwiches, but look at you now. What are you eating? A turkey sandwich. Yeah, but people can change their minds, can't they? Do you give people permission to change their minds or change their opinions or preferences or, or change from their old ways? Ask yourself this, how many individuals are on your personal no-fly list? Do you ever say things like, oh yeah, I was on a team with that person, it was not a good fit, let me tell you, so I'm not going to do that again. Or do you say, yeah, this person offended me, they hurt me, so I just stopped calling them, I don't need that kind of stress in my life. This last question reveals not just whether or not you think people can change, but how willing you are to change. And that's our second question. Am I willing to change? On a scale from one to 10, how adaptable are you? 
How well do you adjust to unexpected changes? Maybe a good measuring stick is your response to coronavirus regulations. We all know the coronavirus pushed all of us pretty abruptly into some new ways of living that cost us a lot and forced us to change. And we still resist those ways a lot. People say, hey, here's a new way to do grocery shopping. And we said, I don't like it. Here's the new way to do birthday parties. Yeah, I don't like it. Here's the new way to go to school, to worship, to do vacations. Here's the new summer, the new fall, the new holidays, the new meeting protocols. And we all said, I don't like it. And people keep asking this question. When are things going to go back to the way they were? But what if the answer to that question is, we can't? What if the way out of this is not the way backward, but the way forward? We might get some things back, other things we might not see again. And that's not going to be easy. In a lot of ways, that's not going to be preferable. But you know what it is? It's good training for hearing this message from Paul. I think this is going to increase our resilience and our adaptability, which is something that I think the church really needs, especially now. And asking the question, how should the church change, is not intended to criticize or discount all of the good things about the Lord's church. I don't mean that at all. But this is an honest admission that there's always room for growth in the body of Christ. A book on adaptive leadership that's been popular in ministry circles over the past couple years is Canoeing the Mountains by Todd Bolsinger. Bolsinger says that rather than relying on old methods and programs, churches need to adapt to the changing climate or they will shrink and eventually have to close their doors. And now the image of Canoeing the Mountains is a reference to the historic Lewis and Clark expedition, whose initial plan was to row their canoes all the way to the Pacific Ocean. We all know that's not a great plan, but they didn't know it. And when they ran into the Rocky Mountains, they realized, oh, you know what? This plan's not going to work anymore. We're going to have to adapt to this new climate and develop a totally new playbook. Bolsinger says, even before COVID, churches have relied too much on programs and preaching as a means of making disciples. Many of the church's go-to methods for sharing Christ will not be effective the same way that they were in the 70s, or in the 90s, or even in the 2000s. And a lot of our church programs came to a screeching halt when the quarantine started. Our familiar methods were no longer available to us. But what happened? That wasn't the end of the church. Remember, the way out is not the way backward, but the way forward. And in Philemon, Paul reminds us of something that will never go out of style or ever be put on hiatus, and that's relationships. Philemon and Onesimus putting their differences aside and working together as partners, as family in the kingdom of God. People get nervous when you start talking about change. And I get it. I understand why. Uh, when that preacher starts talking about change, he's fitting to change something. But the truth is, a lot of things have changed in the last year, whether we wanted them to or not. And they will continue to change with or without our cooperation. The question before us is the same question that challenged Philemon and Onesimus. Can we adapt in ways that will honor our commitment to Jesus Christ? And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I want to invite you to prayerfully listen for the Holy Spirit's response to these three questions. How do I need to change? How do I need to let people change? And what are the best changes for our church right now? It turned out in C.S. Lewis's story that Prince Caspian was a good risk to take. 
He becomes a good leader and a true friend of all of those who are persecuted by the evil Miraz. And it turns out that Onesimus was a good risk to take uh, if the result indeed was a new restored relationship with Philemon and his household. So I pray that we will be the kind of followers of Jesus who are willing to take risks for the gospel, to risk losing personal safety and comfort so that the new creation that God is bringing about every day can break through in our lives and in our church.